What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is podcast number 48, and today we got a guest who is not only an incredible athlete, but also an incredible entrepreneur, and I think you guys will be excited to hear from him. He's taking a sport that we all know, but very few of us follow, if at all, and I think he's on the verge of really creating something and a movement that will last. I got my man Gianni with me as always. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Mr. Paul Rabel. My friend Paul, how are you? Great, man. So as you watch the NBA playoffs, um, and even though the Nets now have been out for a few weeks watching KD's performance a few weeks ago, you being an athlete who, relative to your sport, has performed at the highest level, is there something that you connect with that you think is different, that's bigger than a sport when you're watching athletes on a stage like the NBA playoffs, when they're maximizing every bit of effort and every bit of energy and doing the things that they're doing on the court, like the night Kevin did what he did? I mean, even for me, as somebody who's watched him so closely, I'm amazed at it. But an athlete like you who has done similar things in your sport. What kind of connection do you make when you watch these guys? Yeah, you can feel the flow state. And I think the it's a one moment too, where even non-athletes, the spectators, they feel it as well. Like Marv Albert feels it, like everyone in the room does. And, you know, we connected maybe a couple of years ago with our uh, mutual relationship in Joe Tai. He runs the nets now, but at the time, I think he had just acquired like 51%. And Joe's our, our largest investor in the PLL. And even just like talking with Joe about like his first move was going to get KD. And, uh, and you know, he played college across and kind of understands like the, the, the best moment is what we saw even with that, you know, half inch extra shoe size that Katie had, it would have won the game. But we all like are galvanized on the screen or in the stands when the best player is making the moments happen. But those moments become perennial when we know the person behind the scenes too. So it's not just a comeback or last second shot. It's oh, that's that's KD, and we know him because of the stories that have been out and written about him and his doc and all that other stuff, that's what makes enterprise in sports. And so it's been fun to know you and be a part of that, spend some time with you all both um, back in SF in the, in the days where you, where you all were playing in Golden State and we were doing those tech summits. But the story's powerful. The moment was huge. And I love what Joe's done with the new floor and blacking out the audience as well. It makes it feel like theater, which sports are entertainment. So it was very theatrical, which got all yeah. of our juices falling yeah it definitely was um it was it was like one of those moments and it was ringing in there and it was a vibe and um you know i think man when you see playoff basketball like game sevens where every possession matters uh, i think it struck a chord with people like i the reaction i've received from people about kevin's performance is has been bigger than the two championships and i think the atmosphere in new york and everything you just mentioned had a lot to do with that um you know the two of you are both i saw from maryland kevin from C. Pleasant, Maryland. You're from Montgomery Village, Maryland, right? Is am I yeah. saying that right? Yeah, uh, how far is that from PG County? I know the area well. Yeah, so, so it's about 40 minutes. I went to school in PG County. I, I, well, I've, my first school I went to was a, was a public school called Watkins Mill. I had about 3,000 kids. Um, and 
you know, fledging lacrosse program, our, our coach was pretty absent my freshman year. And my older brother was the captain of the team at the time. He's now my co-founder of the PLL. Um, and we were basically running captain's practices. So I was at that school catching a vibe on the lacrosse team because I was a freshman. I played hoops, but, uh, but I was on a JV team. And I was a varsity and one of our best players as a freshman. So I was starting to like, you know, when you're younger, uh, peer pressure and popular culture like really impacts you. But I was feeling myself as a lacrosse player and started getting recruited to go play at other schools in the area. Um, and DeMatha was one of them. And so it was a pretty easy decision to get an opportunity to, to play with one of the best teams in the state at the time, but they're based in PG County, like right in the heart of PG. And so I had to figure out a ride to school uh, every day with a guy who was playing on the hoop scene at the time, Chris Peterson. And uh, I mean, it's grind. You make sacrifices for sport at that age. But mm -hmm. um, it's kind of similar. A lot of hoops players in Maryland uh, transfer at some point and kind of bounce around for playing for a great coach, playing with great teammates, good opportunity to get a scholarship to play in school. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty, you know, similar to like, I think a lot of high school basketball players experiences, especially as they start seeing that the sport is something that could, you know, change their life. And at that point, you got to put that as a top priority. And that means moving around. Kevin did it a lot. But growing up in, in Maryland, you know, for me, I knew kids that played lacrosse as a kid. They, they were the kids I met over the summer. They were usually suburban kids. Um, there was always like a little bit of a stigma, at least for me. Like I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to play football. Um, I never thought about lacrosse as a kid. You know, how did you even like why lacrosse? You know, how did, how did lacrosse come into your life? And I know there a lot of people play and I know the sport is big, but you know, for a very athletic guy growing up in Maryland where basketball's so big, et cetera, you know, how did you even gravitate towards lacrosse? And then at what point, I guess, did you also start to realize, like, because you're an elite athlete, you know, it's not recognized as a sport like we're talking about basketball, football, but yeah. in terms of relative to your sport, you know, you're an elite level athlete. So, you know, finding lacrosse and then realizing, shit, I'm really different at this. Like, when did that whole process happen for you? Damn. So there's a lot there. So one, I agree on the stereotypes uh, connected to lacrosse. It's, it's like the largest thing for me that I focus on as a co-founder of the PLL is rediscovering and re-educating our roots. So we're a Native American game. Um, it was created by the Haudenosaunee, which is the Iroquois Confederacy, but they're, they're the Haudenosaunee is uh, part of the French colonization, the renaming of the Six Nations. Um, and one of the best players in the world lives on the Onondaga Nation. His name's Lyle Thompson. I play with him now. There's a lot of native players in our league. And uh, in the sport, like a lot of things in a lot of sports, honestly, in the 1900s through Jim Crow era were like hijacked by the NCAA. And if you layer on equipment sports too, uh, like golf, like hockey, like lacrosse, they intersected with classism, right? And, um, and so lacrosse, while a lot smaller than golf and hockey at the time, and it's changed from a participation standpoint, was limited to like mid-Atlantic, Northeast you know, prep schools and things like that. So I didn't know much about lacrosse. I grew up in Maryland and Maryland and New York get dubbed as the hotbeds, but it's really Long Island and Baltimore. You know, kids growing up in Manhattan aren't like giving a stick in the cradle and same thing where I was in Montgomery Village. And I, like I said, we hardly had a lacrosse in at the public school I went to. Uh, but I was, about, I was 12 at the time when my neighbor was playing rec ball and I was 
I was playing AAU and, uh, and was playing club soccer. And both coaches at the time wanted me to commit to both year round. It's like right at the turn of sports specialization. And I loved them both. And I swam in track and field. So I just wanted to keep playing different sports. And my dad and mom did everything they could to just get me into like rec ball and those fundraising events and car washes and shit. And, uh, and so I was like, nah, I'm going to just do seasonal. Picked up lacrosse. Wasn't good at it because there's a steep learning curve. But then when I started picking it up, man, it was probably by the time I was in ninth and 10th grade where I was like, oh, this shit's kind of coming a little bit easier than, than hoops even in, in soccer. And like I could see that trajectory. Yeah. And to your point about the roots of lacrosse, it's the oldest organized sport in American history. Yeah. And I'm wondering, why is it one of the least consumed or celebrated? So, I mean, it's, I mean, for the, for, I'll start with the celebrated part. I mean, most of Native American history is absent of our American textbooks, you know? So, um, I mean, they, they, so it, it, in, in Haudenosaunee, it's called the Hontiquahes, which means they bump hips. And it was a sport that was, uh, or as a game that was mainly uh, connected to the creator. And it was used to solve disputes, to celebrate birth and death. And um, then we play what you see now as a secular version of the game. And lacrosse, going back to the French settlers, is very like a French name. And so they renamed it and began in the 1800s as a team sport in Montreal, then made its way into like NYU and Manhattan and then down its way to the East Coast. Um, so lack of celebration, probably lack of education, which is what we're trying to do. Um, and I think that's, that's like a big piece. Um, the second part is, you know, sometimes it, it's just right in front of you and you got to go get it. And I, I often reference the UFC, what they did to MMA, like mixed martial arts have been around for hundreds of years. And Dana White, Fertitta Brothers, you know, adjusted some of the rules of, of the UFC 27 years ago. But they were like, let's professionalize and commercialize this thing, give it a shot. And I don't think lacrosse has really had a significant enough investment to distribute the game, commercialize it, tell its stories, because none of that shit. Show me a case study in global history of professional sports in Europe, certainly not in North America, where a game that has participation growth and NCAA growth just all of a sudden happens at the league level. It didn't even happen in the NBA. David Stern had to start marketing the athletes. And so there's like this misconception that games are bottom up. They're actually top down. And so we kind of viewed it as let's get in here and try to make something of it. But like as a, you're a smart guy and like you're very entrepreneurial um, and we'll get to that later on. But and younger athletes now, I think especially – think a lot about like okay where's my sport going to take me career-wise you know at least yeah. that's what I'm exposed to but you know seeing athletes get wealthy so young hearing about these contracts that's been part of the allure of a lot of sports you know it's like baseball players make a lot of money I've heard people say like baseball is boring shit but like if my kids played baseball like they do make a lot of money right so when you're growing up knowing that that like entrepreneurial gene is there in front of you like you had to have known at least currently, unless you had a vision to take over, but you had to know like, all right, if I'm committing to lacrosse, which you had to in order to be the kind of athletes you were and play at Johns Hopkins, et cetera, you weren't going to have a big, like lucrative career in front of you. Was that something you had accepted at that age when you were going after it? Man, it's a good question. I would, I would like to sit down and talk with Katie about it. Cause I know balls 
like everything to him. And, you know, we're roughly the same age bracket and like different for him is his game was already, it was already off. And like, you know, there were million dollar contracts when him and I were in high school playing. And so he never even had to assess it. But the reason I'd want to ask is like, man, for the love of the game is real. And I would bet for the reason that KD is perennial and one of the greatest to play is because he has this insane focus on the present moment and just being the best he could when he was at Texas for a year, when he was a rookie in the league, and, and even now with all the shit he's been through. So I never, when I fell in love with lacrosse, and first of all, my parents, like my dad's a paper salesman, my mom's an art teacher, like I never thought that I could be a pro athlete. They were just like, do what you want to do, have fun, and like work hard. So I was never thinking big picture. And I hope that if I have kids one day, I'll probably raise them to invite them to think big picture. So that was never it for me. But I was just so focused on the present. Like I wanted to be the best high school player in the country. I wanted to start on Johns Hopkins my freshman year and we went undefeated and win a fucking championship. I wanted to be the best player in the country the next year. And I wasn't even thinking about pro lacrosse. And the reason why I wasn't, it was really absent. But it's a good point because if, if like, you know, we talk about sports and we're in the business of sports all together, uh, you and I, and, and like, if you really zoom out to 30,000 feet and you're an athlete and you're a family making a decision on, on whether you want to play basketball or soccer or football, you know, there's two things that athletes really care about. And it's what we had to figure out. Uh, absent of winning. It's like, you want to get paid and you want to be on screens, right? You've got, you, you got to be on television. Like we wouldn't, what would we have to talk about if we couldn't have watched Kevin Durant play? So what we had to do as a league is like, all right, I wish I could go raise a billion dollars and immediately play all of our, pay all of our athletes a million bucks. That shit would change the narrative pretty quickly. That's a pretty big dice roll for a lot of investors that like, let's build it first. So the second thing was like, all right, let's go get a kick-ass network deal. And we did that with NBC. And then to solve for the lack of cash compared to our peers and other mainstream sports, we gave our athletes equity. So we were like, all right, remember what, what it was like to play in the NFL in the 60s and all those stories of those guys like having alternate manual labor jobs in, in the offseason and how like they're still repairing their hips and like wish they could get paid. Well, now you have stock, stock options in the PLL. No, it's I mean, what you've built with your league and the vision for it, which I really want to get into the details on, um, is definitely, in my opinion, like a bit of a foreshadow to what the league structures of any new sport that enters into like the landscape may have to look at. It's what athletes unlimited is doing, et cetera. Um, you know, the pipeline I, I read, um, and I never really realized it, that there was this incredible network of college lacrosse players. Um, and again, like you said, this is reserved for a lot of people in the Northeast and suburban areas in Maryland, et cetera. And it's a wealthier demographic, or at least a lot of these young kids that are playing are not playing as like a way out. Yeah. Um, so they go to these schools, and you got to pay tuition, right? You go to Ivy League schools to play to pay. They can't give scholarships there. Did John Hopkins give scholarships? Yeah, they have scholarships as a Division One program. Got it. So, but but at the same time, so for these people that are competing at this high level, like yourself at Johns Hopkins, you said, or I read, there's this pipeline that these 
athletes have kind of been able to build over the years into money, into Wall Street, into opportunity. Uh, were you like, so was that, were you even aware of this network yeah. as you went into Johns Hopkins into this kind of field? Because I didn't realize how real that was. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. Um, we talk about it a lot as, as both, it's like a double-edged sword, right? Like there's, we're a, we're a scholarship sport but we're non-revenue sport in the NCAA. So there's basically what's called headcount sports and then partial sports. And there's like seven headcount sports in the NCAA. Football is one of them, men's basketball, is women's basketball, women's volleyball, uh, which means if you get offered, you get a full ride, full stop. In lacrosse, each program has 12 and a half scholarships. You're right about the Ivies, they have none. Um, and so you're talking about a roster of 44 people. Most guys aren't getting a scholarship. Some, the best players are going full. So uh, what, these, what these families are thinking about is, all right, admission to a top university when my kid may be in the 900 to 1200 SAT range is invaluable in way of a pipeline to a job out of school. Um, and that also goes to what we had talked about earlier, like the history of this country and like the privilege related to access, related to classism that benefits the wealthy. Um, so double-edged sword because like, look, like feeding into a capitalistic environment that we have and going out and earning and creating your life is a good thing. That is a good thing that you can work your ass off and become great at what you do and build economic prosperity. Um, the downside is that um, in, in lacrosse at the college level, some things that I work on with a lot of the universities now that are playing is like they have had to rely on that almost as a recruiting tool for a long time. And now I'm like, whoa, coaches, why don't you like build for the afterlife in the PLL for your guys? Like there's a draft now. They can play professional lacrosse. They can make a lot of money doing it between on-field sponsorship and then building their personality on TV. And so like there's a, still this continual push into real estate and the finance and the other industries. And when we get that to shift, I think we'll see more talent at the league level. So when you got out of school, were you in, like, did you have this network waiting for you? What was Bro, your kind I, of experience? I, I got out of school, my rookie wage in MLL, which was the former league at the time was, was $6,000 for the season. Um, so I had no <laughs> choice. I mean, I was living in my, I went moved back, lived in my parents' basement and, uh, and I got a job with a real estate company in DC. So I was like commuting back and forth and then I would take off the, the owners or I guess the owners of the shop to your point at the time were former lacrosse guys. So they gave me night days off for practice. And then I'd hop on a flight and play on weekends. And then I was early to social media. This was 2008. So it was right when Facebook made their fan pages, like pre-Instagram, pre-Twitter. And uh, I started building an audience. And that's what also like tipped off the idea of the change in the sports ecosystem is now all of a sudden, like you could access lacrosse fans through new media that previously couldn't have any access to pro lacrosse unless television networks and newspapers, radio stations were covering it, which they weren't. So I started building that, got my first endorsement with Under Armour at the time, left my job in real estate six months later, got a small place in, in Baltimore, 700 bucks a month in rent, and just started grinding. And that was what year? That was in 2008. 
And and since then, you did you you bounced and played in different places, or was there a consistent place for you to be playing? I mean, and you also, as as you mentioned, were early to social media, and then built with it, right? You understood yeah. how to utilize it. You you pulled on a certain skill set that you know you either had from just innately, or you know you knew the way the world was going to some degree, which that was like following the NBA method. If there wasn't star players and recognizable players and people that people followed, you know, ultimately a sport could never really exist. Um, So what was that to like till the time this PLL concept came about and you became known to this level? What were that grind like? Because it must have been a grind. Yeah, it was a grind. I mean, I, uh, I launched my own YouTube channel um, and the folks at Google will, will say I'm, some, I'm in a number of their case studies as like the first athlete to have a YouTube channel. But like it didn't mean I went like this. Like I was no like Jake Paul and like none of that shit. <laughs> and, uh, but like I remember you all watched the YouTube channel and like KD like 3X my following. I've been around for like eight years in the first day before <laughs> you even uploaded a video. <laughs> but uh but no, nah, I was on it early. I uh, I love marketing. I mean, it's it's kind of the the cloth that I'm cut with, and um, and I love communicating. I'm curious, so all those like skills boded well for this new media world that we were in. And I had a feeling too, because that, that like Eureka moment, I had I got to A B test what lacrosse could be versus what it currently was. It was probably harder in hindsight for basketball, football, baseball players to see it because they were constantly being covered on sports center and had network deals. So we had none of that. And all I had was social. And I went from like zero followers to 50,000 followers in like two weeks after graduating. So I was like, oh shit, people care about lacrosse. Now let me learn. So that gave you what? That gave you like an idea of who the real organic lacrosse fan was and like yeah. the baseline to build from? It, yeah, it, it gave me an idea that like, people were interested in athletes beyond uh the team beyond um you know the games and i didn't know where it would go beyond that i launched my own merch business and i was selling like i I paid for a licensing deal with the existing league at the time because they weren't selling jerseys like this shit was a mess and so i was like all right they're not gonna sell jerseys and i got people engaging with me every day i'm gonna sell my own jerseys yeah so like it was literally like boxes in my apartment in Baltimore, fucking going to the UPS, shipping out jerseys to make a few bucks. I was running a camping clinic business. I was shooting every day. So I was working out. I had a strength and conditioning coach from college that I stayed with in Baltimore. Uh, now I traveled to games. And like as the new platform started developing, I was early there. Um, and so I was just building a reputation and when you create a reputation, you create reliability and trust amongst my colleagues, amongst industry leaders at the time, then you can start like seeing how the sausage is made, you know what I'm talking about? And so I could see where the pro league was missing, where the national governing body could be better, what was happening at the youth level. And, uh, and I just started like picking it off a little bit. And, um, but on the side hustle, Mike who's now, as I said, my co-founder of the PLL, him and I, he went, to, he went to Dartmouth and played football. And he's always had an entrepreneurial bug too. So out of school, he's two years older than me. We started opening up gyms together because that was like what we shared in common was fitness. So I was like, 
I had another side hustle. I was driving up to Joppa Town, Maryland, which is north of Baltimore, at like seven o'clock in the morning and selling gym memberships when I was 23 years old. That's dope. Like fucking scrubbing the floor and cleaning toilets. And like, it was, it was not shit that like you wanted to share with the world as being a professional athlete, but it was like the stuff you do behind the scenes that, that like you figured out how to operate, you know? Yep. Yeah. And using like your, the fact that you're one of the first athletes on YouTube as a, as a case study, right? Like normally when you're the first that allows you to, you know, succeed and propel your brand exponentially because you're the first person. Yeah. So it's interesting that you, your growth, because what does it take to, for lax players to become like cultural superstars? So, yeah, it's a good question. So what I learned is that I've basically, you know, I've done this, but it hasn't done that like full hockey stick curve. It may have, if I like was on YouTube and, you know, doing these extravagant videos, like these influencers do, they're like kind of first to market and they're more lifestyle influencers. So I was like heavily focused on lacrosse. But what I learned was that my audience size now, like across the mediums is over a million people. It's just, there's not that many lacrosse players out there, right? There's two and a half million participants and there's roughly 10 million fans. So that's what also educated us on how to build the PLL, right? What the MLL, which is the former league that we've merged with since for 20 years has been doing is try to recreate the home and away, the city-based model that we see in the NBA. But we just don't have the audience size to support that, right? There's just like people disregard, and we saw it with the, 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 the quick kind of like up and down of the Super League in, in soccer. It's like it made sense for the top clubs in Europe to do their own thing from an economic standpoint, but the lineage is so deep. The communities were like, nah, fuck that. You're not leaving the English Premier League. You're not leaving La Liga. Like this is like we made you. And so to start from scratch as a team sport today is so hard at, at the city level. So that's why we created a tour model. So instead of like creating fans in a market and convincing them to come to you eight times a season, let's just go to where our fans are and bring the best players world. So that was like kind of the idea. And I learned that from social because I was like, damn, this is our market size. All right, so we've we've uh, hinted at it enough. Tell me, you know, when you first envisioned building this, how it came about, um, what year it was, and then you personally, like, um, at that point, you had built this network of people. You know, obviously, I saw the cap table of the league. These are real investors, and you obviously are very connected. I, I know you're very connected. Um, tell me this whole process and when you finally jumped into, like, knowing you had to take this in your own hands to get this sport where you wanted it to be. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a bit like, honestly, it was, it was a, it was a bit like your experience, Rich, when, when you left what you were doing and just started building an empire of KD. So you may not have, I mean, when, when you met Kevin, you're probably like, all right, there's an opportunity here, but everything along the way for me was like really listening to the mentorship that was like when you network when you meet other people don't expect anything in return just like ask them questions try to learn from them and if they ask you questions share what you're up to and i was 
across from like scrubbing gym floors and, and training and playing lacrosse and posting on the internet, whenever there was a sports conference going on in the country, whether it's South by in Austin or Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, I would get a flight and head up there and like, you know, leverage some, I had a boutique agent at the time, leverage relationships there to get in. And I was just at first a guy who plays lacrosse. And then over years, I became like that lacrosse guy. And I looked kind of, I looked at Tony Hawk a lot as kind of the model of what he was able to do in way of building brand equity through relationships, through, you know, doing well when he had opportunities to strike. And then I became like, oh, this is Paul, the lacrosse player. And then like, where's Paul? He should be here. And so that was like a 10 year grind. None of it was like, hey, I'm going to launch a professional lacrosse league. That moment came really in uh, 2017, where I'd been playing for 11 years and the wages were the same. Rookies were still getting paid six grand. Uh, max, max wage was 16. And like here, my social media properties were growing and I was bigger than the leagues. And they had way more to talk about than I did. They could show highlights of games, talk about every one of the best players in the world, and they weren't doing it. So I tried to help them with it. And we met with a lot of resistance. Um, Mike and I's careers had evolved from a business standpoint, and we had just gotten together and was like, hey, why don't we try this? So we first tried to acquire the MLL, and we had some private equity overhead capital at the time from this group that uh, pledged. And that what they were asking for just made no economic sense. So we knew that the likelihood of getting that done was low. So we were like, why don't we build from scratch? And the opening, and I've told this to some of our uh, shared friends in other pro sports leagues have talked about what it takes for athletes to build their own league. The opening that was unique to lacrosse, if not to the big four right now, is that 95% of the guys were on one-year deals. And I think that MLL was doing that year over year to reserve the uh, ability to go bankrupt and not pay out wages. They were on multi-year deals. But that was their Achilles heel. So overnight, we could sign every player as long as we built the bones of the business. So we knew that was our window. Were there other young stars? Like I see lacrosse and I think about hockey. Do you think that that, like, do you see that young crop of like stars that you're building? And how do you manage, like you obviously have to get the best players in the league, right? But were there other people thinking like you? Were other people in this field having these kind of like ideas of building their own individual brands and building careers when the league had started? Were there other young stars out there? Yeah, there were a few. Um, you know, a couple come to mind are Miles Jones, who's one of the best players in the league now. Uh, Rob Pinnell, another guy. And they're younger than me. And I'd spent a lot of time with them and like thinking through strategy and how to post. You know, the hard part I've been asked to consult with Major League Baseball and as they're trying to figure it out. And, and you all probably thought about that a bunch too. And even the NHL, there's this traditionalism in both of those leagues that really like underscores team over player. And there's this old school thought that if a player, God forbid, says something at a press conference that he's fucking selfish and like he's not about the team and he doesn't want to win. That's, I mean, I think that's total bullshit, right? Like we're old enough and, and mature enough to understand that like at the professional league, you can have a 42-year-old quarterback taking a snap under a 22-year-old dude who just got drafted from Nebraska and like handing the ball off to a 27-year-old halfback from LSU 
Um, all two of the three have families and kids. The other one's like going out trying to like meet, you know, women every night. And so like the dynamic of pro sports is different. It's not college. We're all different ages. We all do different things. And, uh, but like those sports try to fit us all into a, like the same box. And the hard, what I love about the NBA is that you have your stars, you know, leaning into modern media and like having their own gym. And that trickles down to most of the athletes in the NBA that are unsure or uncertain of whether they should do it. That if Major League Baseball and the NHL can get their stars to be like KD, LeBron, Steph, and like be cool with being out there, changes overnight. Lacrosse, you know, the biggest challenge was that we had 20 years of stigma developed at the pro level that the pro game didn't really matter. Like it, games weren't being distributed anywhere. So it was hard. It reminds me a lot of action sports. We look at case studies where like there's this insular culture of like, you know, like kind of making fun of each other if someone posts on social or like you don't want to stand out, you're too much about yourself. So we're trying to like punch that in the face. And a lot of it, what we're doing is just promoting our athletes and telling their stories for them. And then in some cases, giving them the content to push out on their own. Is there hate like that in action sports? Yeah, yeah. Action sports like sometimes can't get out of its own way. It's a lot like what I felt like in lacrosse for a long time. Um, yeah, it's like a sellout culture. Like Tony Hawk will tell you that part of his uh, emotional challenges uh, early on, and there were like docs about it, is that he was like the guy. And like there was this theory created that he was in on X Games and built X Games. And like he was getting this disproportionate amount of fame compared to other guys. And there's just hate that happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably everywhere. I mean, but I could imagine in a sport so small, in a community like that so small, it must feel like it's just filled with hate. But yeah, it's in every sport, everywhere. Um, so what is the actual format? Um, I, you said a tour. Tell me how it breaks down and how it works and who owns the teams, et cetera. Yeah, so one of the reasons why, this is why we went towards, it's like the inside out model that like you can really only explain on a podcast because it like you get these like hits on CNBC and Bloomberg and they give you like three minutes to tell your whole league story. Here's like, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. But uh, you know, sports are entertainment, right? Show business, which means you've got to have a network partner with great distribution. And a network partner is going to invest in your media rights for two reasons. One is you either have viewership uh, so they can buy advertising or they're going to own the property. Um, and so our network partner doesn't own the property and there was no experience in lacrosse yielding viewership. So what we did was put together a compelling case study around why lacrosse could. Here's the fan size, all the stuff we just talked about. But then the bigger challenge for networks is window availability. And so if you go back to the home and away model, one of the biggest challenges, even for leagues that own the venues, is figuring out the whole league schedule and then going to the networks and the networks creating room for those games to be on primetime TV. So there's just no shot that was going to happen if we built the home and away model without a viewership resume. But if we went tour base, which was basically built off of the Final Four in lacrosse where you can get 50,000 fans to attend over a weekend and watch the top four teams play for a championship, we were like, let's create a supply-demand curve. Let's rent out a venue for a weekend. And then go to the network and be like, what do you have available? And we'll play them, right? So that was like the reverse engineering of it. Instead of us dictating when we're playing to the network, let the network dictate to us when we can play. 
And if we can get a network deal before we even take a face off, that's going to change the game. So we built it around that. And so what you see every weekend is the same amount of regular season games, playoffs and championships you had previously, except each weekend, all teams are in the same market and they play once and that's week one. And then week two is the next market. Week three is the next market. So you still have the win-loss record. Uh, we're just all playing in the same location. That's fire. And there's six teams? There's eight now. We started with six. We expanded to a seventh during the bubble. And then we, and then we went back and like two years later merged with MLL. So we actually brought all of their IP under the Premier Lacrosse League and all of the teams that they had. And we expanded to an, an eighth team. Uh, with previously the Boston Cannons, now they're the Cannons Lacrosse Club. And the founders of the league are you and your brother, and and who else is on the cap table, and who are the, your owners of this of the overall league? And then tell me some of the more like who are some notable owners, and who's on the ownership of the uh, of the league? Yeah, so our first investor was a group called Rain Ventures, it was Joe Ravitch's group, um, and they. Are this history in, in owning sports, but a lot of a lot of it's like transacting league and team sales. Um, but they were one of like a dozen early meetings. They took a big liking to us because they agreed with the idea that we viewed ourselves as a media company that ran a sports league. So we had Rain in, and then we had CAA come in, then we had Churning Group come in. So we had a bunch of like media-backed organizations. Um, and then we had some a little bit of private equity with Blum Capital. We just recently raised from Arctos, which is also like big private equity shop uh, that's making some NBA investments. Um, our, our biggest investor, as I mentioned earlier, was Joe Tai. Um, and he has been fantastic for us. He's been a mentor, um, but a friend. He's on our board. And we probably text daily on ideas. Joe was different, though, because... A lot of people thought, oh, Paul and Mike are going to go get Joe as their investor and he's going to like pledge this capital to lacrosse because he cares a lot about it because Joe cares deeply about it, as you know. Um, and his story is unique to lacrosse. As an immigrant that came over, he learned the English language through playing lacrosse. So it's like, very special to him. Uh, but he made us go earn it. Like He wasn't like, here's a, here's a check, guys. I like your idea. He was like, I'm not writing you a check until you go get a network deal and sign the players. And like he had... He had these benchmarks. So he's like a very, and his team's very, um, they're meticulous. And so Joe's on there. And then we have HBSE, so Harris Butcher Sports Entertainment. We own the Sixers and the Devils and, and, um, and the venues there. So um, just like an incredible group, we have individuals, a guy named Brett Jefferson, who, who's uh, founded and runs Hildean Capital, which is a major hedge fund in New York City. He played lacrosse at Syracuse. Um, and so it's been great. Um, yep. And uh, you're only as good as, as your board and, and your investors, really, and, and how much they're willing to contribute. So, I mean, I had heard a few years ago when there was a lot of buzz around the concussion topic in football, I started to hear a lot about how lacrosse had been a sport that a lot of kids were being pushed to now in in lieu of playing football um is that is that fact because it feels like football is clearly not going anywhere um and whatever talk about concussions 
have been subsided a bit. It is the reality of the sport. But yeah. um, is how is it growing? Because um, I, I read that growth overall and popularity of the sport has grown. And, and with this growth, has there been diversity within the sport? Because I yeah. think there's a real obvious stereotype and fact about um, the sport. 100%. So a couple of things there. Uh, the sport does grow year over year. I've heard attribution to like, uh, you know, concussion awareness and concussion um, likelihood in a, in a contest sport like football. But I haven't seen any side-by-side -side numbers from the SFIA, which would be the group to show that like parents choose lacrosse over football. There's anecdotal evidence. But I think what's interesting going back to that top-down theory in pro sports we had alluded to is like the NFL ain't going anywhere, but youth football isn't growing. Youth, youth football's mm. on decline. Pro sports, there's this theory that like pro sports benefit from participation growth. It's definitely additive, but if we were to bank on participation as an outcome to getting to where we want to get to, uh, it would be a losing bet. And I think that's what MLL had previously done. They were building out their market size based on lacrosse participants. I mean, NBA fans, most of them never played organized hoops. And football, 55% of their fan base is, is women. And they don't even get a chance to play contact football. And so, like, we're building entertainment properties. I mean, what are, are we talking about, like, youth kids getting into MMA as a sign of UFC's growth? Nah. So, uh, so participation is important. It can be additive, but it's not how you should build your business at the pro level. Um, for us, from a growth year over year and a DNI perspective, like we have, uh, we launched our set after announcing the league. Our second group was called PLL Assist, and so we know and identify that uh, diverse participation is critical to not only the sport's growth, but also recognizing and like growing its in its roots. Um, mm -hmm. And so you think about how to do that well it's going into markets it's increasing access it's lowering the barrier to enter because sports that are already expensive to play that are difficult to access that don't have you know nets on a field at the ymca boys and girls club or even local rec and park i mean i still carry my net out here in la to a park nearby and set up because it's just not like hoops right like I used to play street ball because it was, it was always there Yep. So access is super important. So I want to pledge in the future to like getting goals and fields on states in states all across the country and doing things like that. But that's like a, a real like hands-on uh, grassroots effort. It requires a big investment. So we're, we're building that with our board right now. No, that's really cool because I think, listen, that's, that's good for diversification. That's good for the league. That's good for the future of the sport. Um, but I think that's going to come with not only access, but education. And, um, and as you build a model of business now where these guys have an, a, a means to a career as well, and then add to that what you said about like the built-in network that comes with being associated with the sport. And I agree with you, you know, I think the, the way people looked at entering into the sports world, whether it was the USFL or the XFL was always very much mirroring what we had known. And there's a reason why these institutions have been around for so long and breaking that mold is hard, but creating new format when sports are so big and we can never consume enough, especially when social media has brought 
attention to athletes from some of these secondary sports that become big stars. But you are crippled a bit in lacrosse because of the Olympics. I mean, that's just a fact, right? And to Gianni's point earlier about the history of this sport, the fact that it was like I read had been in only five Olympic games ever. And I mean, it is like three on three basketball is a sport. Anything is a sport and lacrosse is not. How does that... How does that happen? Like, why is lacrosse not an Olympic sport? Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, from your research, it had been 1904, 1908, 42, 46, something like that. Um, and, and the rules of the Olympics were different then, where like four countries would play. Then as the Olympics commercialized in a way, even though they consider themselves amateurism, they started building in these competitive clauses and you've got to have a certain amount of countries that can compete, but also uh, compete well. And that's actually what happened to women's softball when they were out then back in is like every, every Olympics, it was us Canada and they were just killing everyone else. And uh, that's not in the spirit of the games. So lacrosse reached its reckoning after the forties and they were like, nah, we just can't have us Canada. Uh, England, and I think it was Australia, you all need to develop more. So what we've been working on the past 10 years is really developing with the national governing body. So now there are 60 countries that play and that are fully sanctioned. And over the last four years, we got provisional recognition. And then just two weeks ago, we got full membership recognition at the last IOC meeting. So which means the lacrosse is not only on the path to being in LA 2028, but it got the full membership to compete for a medal. So what's huge is that we have LA 2028 and Casey Washerman's leading that and every home, every host nation gets the ability to bring on three sports of their liking. So I'm, I'm hoping and we're doing a lot of advocacy and work behind the scenes to get lacrosse back in the Olympics. That's dope. You'll play in that, right? I mean, you'll be, you'll be 50. You'll probably be 50, right? Yeah, yeah, bro. that's young. <laughs> is that young in lacrosse? Nah. That's young I'll, for you. I'll be, I'll be out. I'll be out for sure. <laughs> if 50 was young in lacrosse, then I was I'd be thinking about a professional career. I'm yeah, kidding. yeah. Well the wages gotta get higher first. But, you know. So what is the high wage in your league? Well, so we have no cap. Um so guys make guys can make six figures in the league right now. Um and uh, but yeah, we, we have uh, a league minimum which is 25K and then, um, and then everyone else like negotiates their wage and, yep. um, and that's the way that works. And so there's a little bit of like understanding the legal nuance around it. I mean, we, we can't, I mean, uh, my theory was like, we can't institute a cap without having a conversation with players. And so let's have no cap so we're not violating any labor law. And, um, and let's have these conversations and try to like, tag a a reasonable like valuation of what players ask us for which is what they can deliver on the field what they can deliver on social a lot of these new models that we're seeing which are like incentive based Mm -hmm. so and you know you like you said jokingly you're not going to be in the olympics at 50 but i I say you do it because i think that's a cool storyline too like then we got you on the today show we got everything let me manage that when it's time but you you also like you said you run your organization you run a venture fund now and you know i kind of know you more in that circle like you said um i think we spoke prior to this or in the beginning of the interview 
Um, you know, we met in Silicon Valley. Obviously, you're an athlete. When you meet you, it's pretty clear that you're an athlete. Um, but where do you see yourself from a from an entrepreneurial standpoint? Like when you put down the um, the stick, is that the right way yeah. to say it? The stick. Yeah. All right. Um, what go? What comes of that side of your business? Your business, because like the future is is bright as ever for you in that way. Well, I appreciate it. I, I mean, I think my path is clear now. Just be able to operate the thing all the time versus have to carve out hours in my schedule every day to train and try to be a pro athlete too. Um, but I, I mean, I, I love the business of sport. Uh, I focus my time and creativity and predictability on media. So I've learned, I've like gotten the pencil out and learned the, the linear business over the last few years. And we're seeing the linear business shift from like broadcast cable to broadcast streaming, um, which actually creates a better opportunity for long tail sports on a, on a, like a, a, a potential basis. So basically, you know, these networks are valuing all properties based on their lifetime value of a subscriber versus typically it was like number size of audience. They value what they can sell spots and dots against and what they can get from the cable service providers now that they have the NBA or the NHL for a season. So the, the models changed. Um, and so all that said, um, I could see myself going beyond sports. I'd, I'd, I've always said this, I'd love to run a network one day, run a studio. Um, we invest, we enjoy investing in startups and, and founders in particular, um, like you all. And, um, but, but I do think, you know, media and marketing is, is more impactful than even what those of us that have read books on how important it is and seen shows, how important it is. I mean, it's tied to the world of politics, the world of business, the world of sport. And if you can tell an authentic and true and historical story in a meaningful way, it's, it's never more needed than now. Mm -hmm. So before I let you go, um, give me a realistic benchmark, a realistic goal for where the league can be, and you'll be happy with getting it there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'd, we'd be in the next UFC, and I know that like a lot of people are like, oh, we'll be the, we're the next Uber of, we're the next Airbnb of, but you know, if you look at the reason why we're all in sports, there are enterprise industries. And they trade on eight to 10 times revenue. And like you see team valuation skyrocketing. And so, you know, if we, if we take our pen and paper out and do math around the, the way we're building the league, which the revenue buckets are media, sponsorship, tickets, merchandise, youth academies, if you have large companies within and underneath the PLL label, um, and as we continue to track, you know, we can track our way into that, you know, billion dollar category. So I remember telling our players that early on is they thought we were building a better mousetrap than the MLL. And I was like, nah, man, like we have 20 people in the organization. Then we had 70 people and Mike and I are trying to build out infrastructure for 500 people. Um, and maybe, maybe we're too ambitious, but like you, you have to be that way uh, to, to, you know, to impact an industry that's huge. And like you said, like already competitive. You know what? I, I got to be honest with you. Like you saying that at first I said like, wow. But like when you really think about it, if there ever was a time, it's now. You know, I think that there's still ingredients that are missing and that's why you're dope yeah. because you're going to find them. And if I had this as my, if I was you, if I was like an incredible lacrosse player, played this my whole life, who became the founder of this league with the partners you'd have, I'd be so 
excited right now with the opportunity that you're sitting with and the fact that there's a platform for it the fact that like you could say lacrosse going to be the next ufc and i'm not like yo this guy's nuts like it's it's reality like ufc yeah. sounded crazy 20 years ago right like these guys are just crazy, beating the shit crazy. out of each other yeah and there's elements that like we can really that we can't bet on but we can hope for right like conor mcgregor like mj like kd like lacrosse will have its breakthrough star too it's not me like i'm i'm on my way out and i'm building this motherfucker but like when we get that guy or those guys come through that just boom do that that's going to be a tiger woods type you know what i mean and so that but that's we're not we're like i said we're not betting on that like our business is going to grow based on how our operating team is functioning based on the market trends and what we're seeing in lacrosse but if you get that, then it's like, oh, Zing yep. just go yep. on that person. But to your point, Gianni, about the Tiger Woods type, like, you know, what you're saying is like, obviously, if this thing is, is being filtered to the Northeast and to a wealthier um, demographic, you're just limiting the potential of finding, you know, these incredible stars that can yeah. be the next Conor McGregor, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, whatever. But that's what you're doing. And that's why I think like, incredible that you know it's like if conor mcgregor and dana white were the same person and that's what you basically are you know in this in this uh in this <laughs> instance so um this was dope man i got a lot of respect for you i appreciate building with you like i want to keep building with you offline and um yeah man best of luck when's the next time we can watch the pll uh so our games are on nbc nbc sports and peacock um so as soon as this weekend we have games on friday saturday and sunday we're in long island and minnesota and then we have all-star in san jose so we'll, we'll touch base offline try to get you a game and um all of our all of our info is on premierlacrosseleague.com and our instagram is at pll all right amazing man thank you so much and everybody thanks for listening uh subscribe download go to boardroom.tv check the PLL out. Paul is uh, one of those guys, one of those pioneer guys, one of those people you'll be hearing from if you haven't already. And I appreciate your time. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll see you out at the uh, field soon. Yeah, I appreciate you all, man. And like getting the opportunity to come on this show is, is part of that uh, ground game, you know? Like, like when you're talking about demographic, like this is the, like you, you are all representative of the people that. Uh, that thrive around sport, that understand the intersection of sport and culture. And that's where we need to take lacrosse. So I appreciate you having me. 100%, man. Well, I'm, I'm hoping to be a part of it with you in some way. So uh, let's talk soon. Your apartment is fresh in the background for those who can't see. You can't see these dope photos I've been watching. Um, is that like a moon man to your right or something behind you? You want a VMA? Yeah, yeah, no, nah, it's, it's a fake, but if you're oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. All right, man. Best of luck. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Later, Paul.